This week on Inside Marketing, I'll be joined by Professor Karen Nelson-Field as we talk all things attention. We'll talk, amongst other things, about the drivers of attention, the variables that influence attention. We'll talk about different types of attention, and we'll also talk about how attention varies by platform. It's going to be a good one as we talk all things attention, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. So, as I said in the intro, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Nelson-Field. Karen, thank you for joining me. Um, We had to coordinate diaries. We had to coordinate diaries and we had to, (laughs) uh, you know, it, it was tricky. And then we had set it up before, but then... My wife went and had a baby and threw everything out into the a mess of everything. So I'm delighted to finally have uh, got the time with you. So thank you so much for taking the time. How, before we start, how's things? How are you? How's life and business? Yeah, life is great. Business is great. It's great to be traveling again. That's mm. my most favorite thing at the moment, getting back over to Europe and, and seeing customers in USA. And yeah, it's wonderful. That's great. Well, I'm conscious that I only have you for a while and I want to get as much out of this as I can. So if you're ready, we'll crack on. Um, I'm ready. Okay, great. I read I, I read your book. I'd read it before and then I, I kind of read it, refreshed me because I've been reading a lot, which is unlike me lately. Um, and I forgot how what a great book it was. And I actually think, and I've said this before, I think we're, we're lucky to be working in, in marketing at this time where we have such a body of of great work, like, you know, Orlando Woods' work, um, Bill and Bennett, like we live in interesting times where we have lots of research and, and you're um, obviously all the work you've done in, in that, in the attention economy is fantastic. So I'm not sure everyone reads enough of it. So if anyone is listening to this and they haven't read your book, I strongly uh, suggest that they have you. If you're working in marketing, you need to, you know, learn your craft and, and read there. So we, we live in interesting times. So it's a great read. Um, so I'm going to chat to you about kind of mostly about things in the book. And as it's as it started off, I mean, I think this came up before on the podcast, online and and social media in particular. They they kind of we got excited. They made this great kind of false hope of we won't need to buy ads anymore. We'll be able to earn attention. Um, and you know this kind of uh, the idea that we will go viral. You know this this notion that we go viral. And as you point in in, in the book, that's kind of going viral is is a kind of nonsensical term. So I quote you on this. There was. Many hangovers from this unwavering focus on short-termism, but one of the of the, the the big problem areas was, I think, the conflation of engagement inverted commas with kind of social metrics like likes and shares and follows that kind of stuff. So using those things as a proxy for engagement. So why are we so quick, as you say in the book, to jump to into a a worship phase when when we see these new things? Is this something unique to our industry, or is this is kind of we're just creatures of habits and humans? Is what we do. No, I think it's striving for true north, right? So I think it's more around trying to understand what all this means to your brand. You know, when you invest billions of dollars, you know, what does this actually mean? So I think it's more, you know, not getting the answers they need in the past and looking to new metrics to help them with this true north. So, you know, when you call it worship phase, um, often it's, it's, its trend. Um, so some of them are, are too fast to to sort of be jumped on, if you like, but I don't disregard a marketer's desire to want to understand if their ads work. I mean, my whole life at the moment is about trying to sort of disentangle this word engagement and try and really understand what marketers actually want to know and how that relates to brand growth. So 
you know, I, I don't, I don't give them grief over. I just go, you know, they, they need something. Our currency or our measurement system is failing them. And so they go, well, you know, this is something that's interesting. Um, I guess a lot of the socials sort of come out and talk about these new metrics with use cases or, or sorry, um, like, um, case evidence and they jump to it. That's kind of Mm. human nature, I guess, a solution. They jump to the solution. Mm. Um, now, one of the things, there was, a, there was a, a lot in the book that, you know, surprised me or, or maybe made me think about things. So one of the things that you mentioned was that you point out that a lot of um, studies are not, <coughs> sorry, undertaken using the proper methodology. So um, what were some of the things that, in your experience, that you see that we fail to control for in, in tests um, or, or how market share or brand size, for example, is a contributing factor to bias? And we, we don't kind of, we make these mistakes in research, so we're not seeing a, a, a true reality, if you will. Are oh, you taking me back? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think that chapter was all about, I mean, that that book actually was sort of setting the scene for the future of attention and how measurement should look. So, so bias in research is a big part of the mm. downfall, to be honest, of our measurement currency. So, you know, essentially things like um, controlling for market share, so making sure that you have a control, non-exposed control group so that, you know, for example, if Coke happens to over-index on brand choice after an attention study, it's because it was, you know, a good ad, not because it's Coke. So you have to really control for market share and brand size to understand the real influence of the exposure. And a lot of studies don't do that. So I can't tell you how I mean, it's funny because I've only just recently written a paper about the concept of attention science versus attention, you know, attention case evidence. Mm. And 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 what I see, because attention's a land grab at the moment, I and mean, what I see in the industry is so much bias around their results um, that it's, um, you know, don't you know, advertisers don't really know what they're getting. So so part of the book was to sort of say, actually, make sure that if you are going to move into something new in the measurement space, that there are controls put in place that really highlight the true influence of exposure. So that's kind of what that chapter is about. I mean, Mm. it comes from my background, you know, where we're super, super fussy about biases, both from a sample perspective and, you know, outcomes. And, you know, we're we're very much into replication. And, you know, so so that's what that chapter is about. Yeah, because as I say, it was um, <coughs> it was fascinating, and um, yeah, well, there's lots in the book that was fascinating, but um, and something there's a few things in the book that might make uncomfortable reading for um, people who are performance specialists or experts or or kind of build their life around performance marketing. Um, but one of the one of the things that you point out is that we we now like to think that advertising is quite persuasive and is quite immediate and yet like the reality is we know there's more subtle it takes it takes time to evolve it takes time to play out and like it's really difficult to measure properly right you know when you when you think about the longer term so advertising always worked in that way but you say in in, in the book that you know our ability to interpret reasons for success now have have, have developed so can you talk to me about that a little bit yeah, I mean, look, you know, the concept um, that advertising is more of a weak force than a strong force is not my work. That comes from early sort of Andrew Ehrenberg principles. Um, but, you know, he he found 
over lots of sets of data that actually advertising is there to nudge your existing propensities. And what that means is you're more likely, you know, so, so if you advertise at a point when someone is in the market to buy and they're close to the purchase occasion, advertising will have a greater effect than if you try and sort of hit them over the head with a hammer and persuade them that they need this particular thing, which is most likely they don't. So advertising is less likely about persuasiveness and more likely about reinforcing that they need that category at that moment in time. Um, So that's kind of what that piece is Mm. about. And, you know, if I think about, if I translate that, I mean, I wrote this book two and a half years ago and, you know, our business, but also the attention ecosystems moved along so far. But even in the last two and a half years of all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of, uh, data points that we've collected, um, we can see even with attention that advertising doesn't always move the needle. And that's often to do with, you know, the brand isn't present or yeah. early enough or distinctive enough and it's misattributed to a bigger competitor. So the concept of being able to pinpoint exposure and outcomes is not as simple as mm. most people think. And, and I think that's what frustrates me a little in our industry. You know, they're always looking for I have to say, Dave, if someone actually asks me one more time, is attention even important? I might sort of punch them in the face. But when someone asks me that, um, they sort of say, show me proof, show mm-hmm. me that if if I need someone to pay attention, it's hard to prove that because there are so many other factors other than exposure. What I can prove with attention metrics is when someone's been, you know, has literally looked at it or not. I mean, that's that's about the best I can do. So it is always hard. Because, you know, moving the needle on an actual sale has a lot to do with your competitors mm. and a lot to do with your physical physical availability. It has a lot to do with your branding. There's so many things. So it's complicated. Yeah. <coughs> I'll cancel that question about um, is attention important and I'll take that one out. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't have that one. I'm joking. Um, I won't punch you in the face, I promise. Oh, I'm joking. I don't have that one. Um, it's about one of the only questions I don't have. I have too many questions, but we'll see. Um, okay, so tricky question then. It's hard to measure. It doesn't move mountains and it moves a bit, as you put it, more like a glacier. So, like, how do we measure advertising's impact then? What, what, what's the best way to go about doing that? Again, um, you know, look, we've taken on some work that was done by John Philip Jones um, years ago and still to this day sort of take that approach, which is short-term advertising strength. So it's basically we do a lot of discrete choice modelling when we collect data and have done for five years. So let me step back with attention being, you know, we talk about the shiny new thing. I never wanted to be in an industry where we were one of those things. So I mm. wanted to make sure what we were developing from an ecosystem perspective and what I write about in the book is something that's important. So to do that, the first three years of our business was validating whether attention was a an important metric and we use discrete choice modelling to determine that. I'll get back to that in a second. And the second piece was, is it different enough from what we have? So the answer was a resounding yes for both. But going back to your point, so for the first three years, um, essentially we um, we have a, a technology that films people through different devices, cameras, uh, you know, mobile, TV, PC, cinema now, outdoor. And uh, essentially this allows us to understand if someone was exposed and then what we would do is we would send someone to a virtual store to pick from 
a choice set. Right. So we don't, we're not big believers, we're well, not believers at all in recall or intention or consideration because they're quite removed from a real choice set. Um, and then we use that against a control group to see if with the exposure, more people choose the brand that's ex- that's exposed than not. And we've had massive success out of mm. that. And that's actually, so STAS is not new. We don't claim that we own that, but it's it's a measure of short-term impact and it's a measure that isolates other effects. Right. That was okay. a long answer. Sorry. <coughs> that. No, no, I like long answers. Long answers are good. I'm still, can't shake this cold, so I'm, I'm coughing off mic. So long answers are great. They give me time to cough and regroup. Um, uh, mental availability, right, there's a lot, a lot of talk about that. And it, it, mental availability is probably correctly and widely accepted as a, an acceptable proxy, right, for well, for advertising success and, and and many things. So, but but it's not the same as, as brand tracking. You pointed out, it's, mental availability is not the same thing as, as brand tracking or awareness or consideration. So how do you go about measuring mental availability at scale? Well, again, the the person behind this methodology is Professor Johnny Romaniok, so not my area. We mm. just use the principles because it is best in class for long-term brand mm. impact. So short-term brand impact is what we use for this virtual store and stats. Long-term brand impact is mental availability. And basically, it's complicated, but basically the concept of, of mental availability is there's a competitor set. So if you think about you know insurance, for example, who sits in that insurance category and what you need to understand is um, across a certain amount set of category entry points. So at a certain point in time, does how many people and how many category entry points do they think of you versus your competitors? So for example, let's use an example. So if you were going to the beach and you are sort of asked, you know, what soft drink do you think of at the beach? You might think of Pepsi, I might think of Coke, someone else might think of Dr. Pepper. And but then there's also other situations with that particular like when you're at the football or the yeah. soccer, whatever you call it, um, what soft drink do you think of? So depending on the category entry points, so it's how many people across how many category entry points against your competitors right. that gives you this mental market share, if you like. And what is well known, and we see it even in our own data, and we've done it for years, is that mental availability or mental market share um, is directly related and very strongly related to market share change. So if your mental availability decreases, so your mental market share decreases, your market share will likely follow. So a big piece of the work for us is um, to sort of understand what low attention platforms and high attention platforms, the impact that that has on this capacity to either maintain or even grow your mental availability. And certainly we see you know, there is definitely a risk, and this is something that I was in Ken a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago talking on stage about, we see that low attention platforms not only don't maintain your mental availability, but it's likely that it will decline and therefore your those those sales and that mental share will go to your bigger competitor. So we've used that for years as well because it's it's a definition around long-term brand impact. Mm. Um, um, we'll get on. We'll get on and kind of get into the detail about attention in a minute. But just staying with mental availability, availability for a second. Like 
you've been at meetings, I've been at meetings where we're, we're getting briefed on a brand or in a, a brand immersion session and there's a hundred odd slide deck and we start talking about how, you know, different the brand is and how it's completely different than anything else. And in reality, brands are quite similar, but you can start to buy into it. You start to see people are so passionate about whatever, it's a beer and they talk about how different it is. Um, and the notion of a USP is somewhat gone away in marketing, but um, you point out that USP is actually a, a hindrance to growth in the sense that it, it the way you put it is it unhinges any attempt to build strong mental availability. So um, why does that happen? And are we kind of naive in marketing to think that any notion of a consumer, forget what we think, but a consumer would, would kind of see any kind of USP or replay that back to us. Advertising might work in that way. So Longish question, yeah. but go on, sorry. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, um, the reality is most unique selling propositions are expressed as a as a function of the product. So, you know, we clean brighter, we smell nicer, we, you know, we drive better, <coughs> we all of these sorts of things. And and quite frankly, it's hard to own that. Yeah. So if your unique selling proposition is tied to the functionality of a brand or the, the, the product category, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to own that. I mean, there's rare few, like, you know, the safest car, you probably can think of that yeah. one, um, but that's super rare that that even happens. So tying a function um, to as a unique selling proposition, it is pretty silly, to be honest, and quite frankly, easily replicated. That's the other point. So whereas the distinctive asset piece, which is, mm. again, Jenny Romanian's work, is, is is um, you know, your own IP, so it's branded IP. So distinctive assets are intangible assets for your brand, and they're easy to trademark, and, um, you know, they cannot be replicated, but, you know, you, you can't trademark that you clean better, you know? No. So that's kind of the difference. One is distinctiveness, one is differentiation, and that's the difference. And, you know, there's a lot of American text that talks about USPs. It, it comes from there, and, and it's, I think, done a lot of damage to the longevity of brand growth. Right. Yeah, and I think any of the ones I can think of, they're probably legacy ones where – where you know these are kind of just entrenched in our in our memory. We've grown up with these things like the the, the some qualities of Lucasade, or you know they've just been around for a long time or whatever. So those 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 ones that work have got that. And then yeah, again, I, I think mean, sorry, one. I was just going to say. So some of them, um, you know, I mean, a classic one is finger licking good, and I don't even know if they still have that. I remember when I was a kid, we're the same age, so I don't know do. if you remember that one. Yeah, I think they do, um, but then I don't know. It could be do just they actually? I don't know. I don't actually, they actually do. In my mind, yeah. they still do. <laughs> but yeah, so that technically is actually connected to a function of that particular product, um, but at the same time, it's become distinctive yeah. unto itself, as in it's a tagline, right? So. Yeah. There are some nuances <coughs> around distinctiveness versus differentiation, but the the concept of differentiation being a hindrance is that it's typically easily repli uh, yeah. replicatable. Yeah, and and it, it, I guess it's n not always, but you're less in control of that as a function if you're a marketing person. You know, you're not. You, you can be somewhat less in control of it. Um, I want to talk about awareness now, or sorry, attention now. So you point out that not all attention is the same. So firstly, what what did you mean by that? And then you recently published a paper in Work about the shapes of attention. So can you tell me a little bit more yeah. about that and different <laughs> types of attention. 
Yeah, it'd be interesting. I'd be interested to know when you say I say that not all attention is the same, in what context do I say that? Because um, the only context, I mean, it's been about two years since I've read the book, but the only contents, the only context I can think of me saying that is that we delineate from, you know, active attention to passive attention to non-attention. So the definition of attention, I haven't made this up, this comes from literature, is that Attention is about a human basically stopping what they're doing and focusing on one single thing, even if for a fleeting moment while sort of pushing everything else out of their way, right, Mm -hmm. for the purpose of learning something, for the purpose of concentrated attention. And But that's active attention. That's when someone focuses on something and I look straight at your face, right? But there's also the moments in time where, and I, it's interesting because I get criticised a bit about this, you know, whole Heath legacy that is left with low attention processing. We call that passive attention. That does play a role. So when I'm not looking at you but I'm focusing on something else, there is an element of, particularly with advertising, if you've got a distinctive brand, you know, you can actually see the red can and you can, but it's not as strong. Um, so whether that's the context that I said not all attention is equal um, but when you then bring in the work piece, um, what we do know is that attention time is not the end point for measurement. And I've known that from day one. Um, but my job as a, I guess, you know, some would say me thought leader, some would say idiot, some would say <laughs> attention guru, whatever, I don't know if that's who I am, but I've known that along, but my job as a, an authority in the space is not to confuse the hell out of people, right? Mm-hmm. So we're moving into a different phase of measurement. And if you start to talk about the clusters of viewing behaviour that sit underneath each tension second, someone will go, what the actual, and sort of push back on change. So the recent paper was a little bit about, I reckon we're ready now. People understand that attention is important. They understand that there are kind of layers of attention, high, low, active, passive, however you want to kind of define it. They understand there's a difference between attention that's collected by humans and then the bad attention, which is kind of modelled from pixels and things like that. Um, but now it's about, um, yeah, so, so attention time unto itself was never our endpoint because, to your point, three seconds on one platform can actually give you different outcomes than mm-hmm. three seconds on another. Mm-hmm. And it's literally because the distribution that happens behind that average does vary and what sits behind those averages are different types of viewing behaviour. So that is a super complicated question that you asked me and I'm excited that you asked me that. Hopefully your listeners haven't gone to sleep. But <laughs> no, it not. is really fun and it is really exciting and that's where we are now productizing and using those shapes um, to really critically predict outcomes to a extremely higher order there is no random in it at all so it's pretty exciting we're pretty excited yeah no it's great and this is it, this is anyone listening to this is is interested in or working in or both in marketing so um it's all it's all super relevant for everybody so um they'll be they'll be actively listening um good <laughs> you um you, <coughs> you 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 did a, a big piece of work with Dentsu um so again it was probably 3 years ago 2 and a half years ago and it was kind of um, underpinned some of the book 
or a lot of the book. So can you just give a very, this might be really unfair, a, a very top line kind of indication of, of some of the, um, the the key findings from that. So, you know, there was a couple of things which were surprised me. One of the things that surprised me with that, because I think when you talk about attention there, uh, the binary view of attention is we have to have attention, right? And if you don't have attention, it's a bad thing. But like one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was that like low attention is still valuable in, in certain instances. Yeah. So. so that was kind of what I was saying before. So we call that passive attention. So um, it's not as valuable as active mm. attention. Let me be really clear um, from an outcomes perspective. But passive attention is pretty much the majority of attention you pay <laughs> because it's rare to get someone single focus on something while they're kind of pushing everything else out. So, you know, the fact that I catch my eye to my right and I see, oh, I shouldn't tell you what I see because that might be weird, but no, now polish this side and, you know, an air conditioning unit on this side and mm. some post-it notes over there. And, you know, so I'm not looking, but I can see them generally and I know what they are. I've paid passive attention and I understand it's very hard to define. I couldn't tell you what the brands are. I can't. I, I mean, I own this air conditioner, obviously, and I couldn't even tell you. I have to look at it directly to understand the brand, and that's a classic example. Yeah. The passive attention. I know there's a control right next to me, but I've forgotten what the brand is, and I need to look at it directly to remember what brand it is. So, um, I forgot the question. I have a answer. What, like, was there any <laughs> was there any other surprises um, or any anything that maybe? surprised you and maybe it didn't surprise you it just surprised me but on that piece of work with Densu was there anything that you kind of weren't expecting to see I think when you when you did all that work yeah so back to Densu I mean you know the book was pretty much shaped out when I was in in I was essentially contracted by them so so a lot of the thinking that went into the early attention economy phase one was work that we'd already done yeah. in, the, in in this space to sort of get them. So they were amazing in that they uh, allowed us to sort of go in and ask questions of a bigger data set without a doubt. So I think the low and high or active and passive attention piece was the first time that I really saw um, some of the outcomes and how they were related to the the passive and active, whereas work we'd done in the past, we knew there was more passive attention than active attention, but it was harder for us to define the outcome space. Mm. But yeah, so I think that was probably the big piece for us. Um, and just the just the amount of data we collected, you know, there were multiple countries. And so it was a really great starting point yeah. for this entry point to an attention economy. I mean, by that point we had you know, we were still working on time. We were still, there was definitely no shapes of attention. There was definitely nothing deeper than, but it was a fantastic springboard into, you know, <coughs> viewability is failing us. Mm. Um, and in fact, more recent work, and I'm about to publish it, is that, and, and the crux of that is because of time and view. Time and view is the yeah. antichrist of, um, of measurement effectiveness, if you like, quote that one. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it was it was a great experience for us. Um, and I, look, I think it's important. I'm not having to go with tech. You're not having to go with tech, and you and you point that out in the book are tech platforms, and it's and it's not about saying one thing is better than another thing, but th but there are some really interesting, I suppose, get away from it, comparisons that could be made. And while it might be unfair um, to, to kind of try and compare different platforms. But in some of the work you, you saw, um, 
or that you under the, the data that you you'd seen when you did the work, is it tr- fair or true to say that relatively speaking, you know, when you think about video, Facebook um, and YouTube impressions are are overpriced versus like an impression on TV when you think about um, attention and the attention economy? Is that fair or unfair? Uh, look, what I'll say is that each platform has formats within it that behave differently. So when people naturally call out Facebook or naturally call out YouTube, within those there are some exceptional formats and then there are different less exceptional formats. And it's the same for everything. It's no different than television really because there's some less performing genres and time of day. I'm going to give you the political answer and say, there is definitely a disconnect between performance and CPM, without a doubt. And I think it's too soon for an attention CPM for that exact reason. So CPM comes off of the back of a supply and demand. Like it's basically off the bidding, sits off the back of bidding. So, so CPMs are all over the place because there was no baseline for performance. Um, and until CPMs are normalised, we can't have an attention CPM. I think it's wrong. Um, so I think the answer to your question is you are correct. The, this, the cost of platform impressions is not right and it uh, needs to be realigned. Now, whether that's Facebook's too expensive or TV's too expensive, I don't want to answer that right. question. I mean, that's really up to the industry <coughs> to define that. My job is to say actually these CPMs aren't relative mm-hmm. to performance. Mm-hmm. It's fair. Okay. Um, I'll give you, I'll, 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 yeah, I'll accept that one. Give me that political Yeah, I'll, I'll let you that one. I'll let you that one because we have to stay friends with everybody. That's fine. And, and we are genuinely, like, I'm not having to go. Everything has its own strengths and Well, they and do, and, but they, but they so. also perform differently, right? So it's unfair to say that every single platform has the opportunity to get 30 seconds of your time because it's just not designed that way because the functionality of the platform and the user interface is not designed that way. So so how I look at it is I think, you know, there are some that I would not put my own money on, but I would also say it depends on the campaign objectives as well. And that's sort of where we're moving. The creative, yes, because bearing in mind your creative doesn't help so the, I don't know if you've read my paper on chicken and egg, but creative does not drive attention and push it out. So, so if you've got X amount of seconds on platform A and then twice as many seconds on platform B that are normal, your creative fits within that. It's yeah. not going to change that norm. But um, yeah, to point of creative strategy, like if you've got, um, I mean, you're a CSO, so if you've got like a, a, a brand that's launching a whole new variant, you you, you can't allow them to push that out on a two-second platform no, no. because that's wrong. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> sorry. Um, one of the things now, uh, again, we're not here to, you know, to, to agree or disagree whether the, the standard currencies for ad viewability and, you know, an impact and whatever those definitions are, like 50% of pixels for two seconds. I'm not here to say whether they're right or wrong, but what I found quite alarming really was how scale falls off a cliff, reduces relatively quickly as as you change some of those parameters. So, you know, for different platforms like um, mobile, in-feed video. Can you talk to me about some of that work? Because conscious, not everybody would have read the book who's listened to this. So, Yeah, so that's bringing me back as well. So that was some work that I did a few years ago now. But basically, um, 
you know, the the viewability measurement came in at a time when the internet was literally unregulated and it was pretty bad. So, you know, an ad would be not even served and an advertiser would be charged. So I give credit to the MRC who came in with the industry and said there needs to be some standards. And then off the back of that, technology was built. Now, I can articulate this a bit better now even than in the book, but that's when inward-facing measurement began. And inward-facing measurement is when we stopped measuring outward and humans and we started measuring time and view and pixels and no sound on or sound off and all of these device-based or metadata that sits behind the platform. And at the time, it was quite revolutionary because to know whether an ad's been served and to what degree the amount of pixels, it was pretty revolutionary at the time. So it was better than nothing, right? But we found out pretty quickly um, that 50% pixels on screen and two seconds of time was not enough Mm. for a brand to have major success. And I think what you're talking about is when we looked at all the data that we had, if we if we pushed up the pixels or we pushed up the amount of seconds, the amount of inventory that was yeah. available significantly reduced. So I think that's a piece yeah. of work. So I think it's probably changed a little bit now because in fairness to the platforms, you know, I've been out on the speaker circuit for a while now banging on about the need for change. So I do actually recognise that some new formats, I mean, classic example, so when that work was done, stories was not a thing Mm. on Facebook Mm. or Insta. So um, there has been improvements. But I think the the fact is high attention, Mm. high quality formats, Mm. there are fewer of them, put it that way. So we'll have an inventory. It will have an inventory crisis. So if if everyone rushes to this concept of more attention, particularly when we overlay sustainability, which is coming in, yeah, um, there will be an inventory crisis. Right. So a lot of the formats will have to be held to account to push more quality inventory. Yeah, because it was alarming to see some of that. How 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 you know the reach that they have. And they have great. They have significant reach, but. Depends what what you measure. Like if you change the the rules, then it drops off. Um, second length is always like because the platforms will tell you shorter is better. You know, works equally well. You can do the same job in well, maybe not two six seconds. You know, um, but it, did you find a sweet spot? And 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 is it a case that like at some point I don't like six second ads. I find them just a bit. I have a short attention span. I get bored of them. I think just get to the point. Um, is there a sweet spot in terms of ad length? It's hard when you think about different formats because it works on telly. Maybe isn't the same as you know in feed. But is there a sweet spot in your data? A magic well, number? Well, I think. Well, look, the only sweet spot I sort of publish is that two and a half seconds is about the time when a memory structure kicks in. So going back to MA or mental availability, we know sort of beyond that it doesn't help. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, so that's probably the main sweet spot that I publish. I mean, back to your point before, it really depends on the objective of the campaign. I, I used to say, and I still do to a degree, that more attention is better, but there is a point of diminishing returns. And it's, you know, I've been asked what the sweet spot of that is because that depends on your brand. That depends on the size of your brand depends on the marketplace. So it's really hard for me. I'm not a big fan of single point sweet spots because Uh I think that's like the old days when someone said it's 3X frequency or, you know, I'm still, 
dealing with the legacy of a paper that Nielsen put out years ago about I think it was 46% of you know attention or or ad ad impression or ad effectiveness is driven by the creative that's just rubbish and you know just having a single point like that is actually a bit scary so for me at the moment I think the more attention the better but um, again as we move to reducing uh, the carbon footprint in our media ecosystem, we'll we'll personally be tightening that up so Mm -hmm. that we'll be able to sort of work towards how much attention do you need, not how much attention should you take. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, And you're right. I know. I mean, I I totally agree. I think it's dangerous when, because we latch on to things. So 60, 40, long, short, that's, you know, and what happens is, I think what gets lost is that was supposed to be a a very a very basic starting point which you kind of apply variables to and from and then but the amount of the amount of clients in so many different industries that have 60 40 in their head and that was not even just like that's applied just purely to media spend that was never the case either so I think yeah, you're right to you're right to not give me an answer there because it will probably come back Yeah, to well what I do want to do what I love about what you just said as well is I've learned that those almost tweetables are the things that stick, right? Yeah. So for me, what I've tried to do in the last five years is bring in these one-liners that people remember. So it's interesting because half the time if I'm in an audience at Ad Week, someone will talk about these one-liners and haven't worked out that the author's in the in the audience but right. they don't know that I was the author, which is probably not great. They probably should learn who said it. But, you know, so, so I try now to sort of talk about language that are easy so again, you know, two and a half seconds mm. is good. Is the memory attention threshold? Things like um, inward facing versus outward facing. So outward facing is good, inward facing is bad, and you know, sort of really sort of concepts that help people understand what attention looks like. You know, at the latest one is you know use attention um, as signals, not a currency unto itself. And you know, I've got oh, I could write a whole book on one-liners, quite frankly. Do you want me to give you an exclusive? I do. I'm yes, about, I, I am going to do a second book, and I've been offered a publishing deal. So oh, that is literally the first person I've told. So great. Um, so that might be the idea that it's it's my one liners from the last five years of my world. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, like there's a there's a lot in. I mean, because you know, you talk about what the the variables that contribute to attention so whether it's on screen coverage um or or clutter um how important is the context cuz i think again it's one of the things that the promise of programmatic misdirected us to a degree because it didn't you know there was it wasn't quite as as black and white as this but there was an idea that you know, you, you get the person who's interested in golf, you don't have to pay the premium to be in the golf editorial, you can find them wherever they show up on the open web. And and that context in the long tail of, of network buys was 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 were lazy and 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 became probably less important. So how important is the, the editorial, the quality of editorial and or or, or the context in which an ad appears? Because that, that would be good yeah. news for publishers who've been really hammered by, you know, by the uh, Google's Play Network and Facebook. Look, there's lots of questions within that question. The first piece is context does matter. So we see that, and the reason why it matters is because we talked about this difference um, between passive and active. So if you're reading something, which technically you're not looking at the ad, you're still looking at it passively, right? Mm. So that's when passive attention kicks in. So if it's a better feed than another, 
and you're actually interested in the content, then you're more likely to sort of glimpse down to see it actively, the ad, or that you do actually have a longer period of time to see passively what that brand is. So, so we know that it is important. The problem with programmatic is that it doesn't often hit quality publishers and the, then you've got so much. Cl- so it's kind of a combination. It's great to have a great, you know, all these magazines will probably be excited for me to say, oh, yes, context matters. Mm. But if you've got a highly cluttered format and it's got, you know, MREX popping in and, you know, late, um, you know um, banners popping in and, you know, buy me, buy, it just, it turns you off. So it's, it's, it's more likely not going to actually do you any favours. So it's not as simple as just saying that, you know, every publisher is going to be able to claim that their content is valuable, but I do know that it does make a difference. Yeah, I mean, Ad Load is obviously, I mean, we've, we've all, we all know our own sites where um, whoever in UX has decided I'm going to cram as many formats onto this one visit and um, one page of press as I can. It's just horrible. Like, I mean, well, I, I mean, you know, works. we're not into sample of one, but think about the time when, and I do it myself, when you want to read something, but it's so offensive yeah. that you just go, I can't even, I don't even, I don't want to read it that much that I want to deal with what's being thrown in my face right now. Yeah. Um, I won't keep you too much longer. Just a few more questions. Um, the term double jeopardy is known in, in a in in by maybe everybody in brand context. So you know more users and they tend to share users with other brands. Um, you know the idea of loyalty. But in the book, and I remember you said this in the book that that applies to media organisations too. So do yeah. does that work? Do bigger media organisations have a loyalty and frequency and consumption advantage over smaller ones? Yeah, so that's two different laws that you just smushed. Okay. <laughs> um, double jeopardy is the concept that um, small brands have fewer people who buy you less often. Duplication of purchase is when you share, you, the small brands share more of their consumers with the bigger consumers. So it's slightly, but they're related, mm. but um, slightly different. So I forgot what I've written in the book, but um, some of my original work was around I'm thinking duplication of viewing, which is essentially this concept that bigger platforms share their user bases less right. with small ones, or the opposite is true. So if you've got a small platform, your users are using your competitors more often. It's that kind of concept. So we do see it in media. Right. Um, now, that was Double Jeopardy. You spoke at Cannes recently and you you shared a stage with, with Peter Fields and Orlando Wood on triple the triple jeopardy of attention. Um, I spoke to Orlando two days ago, I think, <laughs> actually. That hasn't come out yet, but I spoke to him two days ago. So can you give me just, you know, some idea of what, what, what you guys all talked about? What is the triple jeopardy of attention? Well, sort of a parody, to be honest. It's sort of a bit of a plan words because there's no law of triple jeopardy. There's a law of double jeopardy, and I see that even in our own data. So we see that <coughs> low attention platforms not only drive less mental availability for you, but more for your competitor. Low attention platforms have more people who switch more often. So we see a lot of these laws within the attention data. But what we were talking about with Triple Jeopardy is that three of us stood up there and had unfortunate wor- unfortunate <laughs> things to say about, this was a bit doom and gloom. So it was a bit of a play on words because, you know, Peter was talking about, um, you know, the relationship between share of voice and share of market and how that's declined over the years. 
I've, and that's a negative. I've kind of come in and gone, I can kind of tell you why, because, you know, about 85% of the ads that you buy get you less than two and a half seconds of time. Mm. And we're constantly measuring inwards, which tells you nothing about whether a human's view. So it's a negative number two. And then, you know, Orlando comes in on the end with his amazing creative speeches and takes us back in history, but also says, sorry, but no one does it anymore. So that's negative number three. So that's the concept of Triple Jeopardy. It was just a bit of fun. Okay. Um, now, kind of have a, have a dig at media agencies here, I will. Um, you could argue that the craft of planning was somewhat circumvented with the rise of programmatic, right? So you could reach people through technology and um, the machine could do it for you. Uh, when you you made the point that quality reach is actually out there, it's just it's just harder to find. So is, is that like is that a challenge? Isn't that the role of of the good of the media agency to rediscover the craft of of finding quality reach? Um, isn't that a media planner's craft in an agency today? Do you think? Mm, do you think? No, I uh, the opposite. I am not that person that's going to put down a media planner because they have no idea what sits behind the pipes. None. Mm. So it's really quite distressing. Um, I mean, yeah, that's their job. But when you don't understand what you're being delivered and on the surface it's all looking the same and equitable, how is it yeah. How is it their fault? So um, the reality is the recipe of quality is different for every single format within every single platform. So it's complicated and unless you outward measure humans to understand how someone's interacting with that platform, no metadata or proxy pixel or any of that can tell you, you know, what a human's doing. So I, I actually feel for the media planners. I think their job's harder uh -huh. than it used to be when I was young and in media. And um, so I'm, that's kind of what I'm solving for now. And, you know, when I said to you the first few years we – we validated the measure. We validated that it was real and important and different and rigorous. The second part of my journey has been to sort of push products that do make the life of a media planner easy. And we're a bit slow to market with product because we believe in rigor, not commercialism. So, um, you know, the reality is when we pull products together, which there's some going out live now, it will make their lives easier. Okay. And, you know, it's not about making them feel silly. It's just giving them help. Mm. Um, but like there is a real, and I said it before, like with all the work that we have available now, there it seems that we have a, a, a lot of evidence um, and data to support that we can be better. We can do better as an industry. Are you, do you think there's, sufficient appetite to change things you know there's a lot of pressure on agencies you say even like in, in my business procurement piled pressure on things on on the agencies um and i'm not going to call it any clients but clients they have an ambition an emotional kind of um they want to support local irish publishers in ireland but but then at the same time they're under pressure to get the cheapest sale so what they say and what they do and it can 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 be at odds sometimes because because procurement wants results and, and clients want results. So do you think there's enough, do you, do you see change happening at all? Do you think, are you I confident do. or optimistic in this? Because it's going to be quite yes. doom and gloom at the moment in terms of everything that's wrong. We're, mm. we're in diagnosis territory. No, it's moved. So I see us in at the point of critical mass where it's about to sort of dip over the, the tipping point, if you right. like. I mean, I think, so, so procurement and auditors are our biggest enemy 
for change because their job is literally to get the lowest, common, cheapest inventory. What I am seeing, though, is, you know, we're calling that out and um, there are certain agencies in particular that are very focused on change, others a little slower, but it is absolutely moving towards that. So, and then couple that with the pressure that you get from brands and you think of the work that WFA is doing and, you know, there's a, it is a hundred percent moving and changing. I can see it. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) So that's exciting. Yeah. Cause, because as as I say, I mean, I do think I'm Bob Hoffman saying we're we're in an industry without principles when you compare to other industries. And and there's a lot of truth in that. You know, even the fact as we talked about, we we throw out the sound bites sometimes without understanding the nuance of of what we're talking about. So it's kind of like, well, you got to just get me what what's the answer? What's the answer? And 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 missing the, the detail. So I, and I just don't know why that happens in the industry so often that we live in a world where there is an abundance of, you know, evidence and and um, thought leadership in terms of this. And yeah, I, I just worry that are enough young people coming into the industry reading this stuff? Are they up to speed? Is there, like we don't have a, a standard curriculum, which I don't know how marketing is taught in schools. Yeah, and I, I mean, just... my, yeah, look, to be honest, my job is to move on from, as it is, the books and give them tools. Mm-hmm. So when you give someone something that works, rather than trying to preach at them that it works, it can yeah. work. And that's kind of why the business has taken so long to make sure that we build out tools for young people not to have to worry about going back to school and learning it and that they just get given tools that work. So um, you mentioned earlier on um, a, a a coup for Inside Marketing to get the, the news that you're working on a new book. What else are you working on? And you mentioned some tools there. So is there anything else that you're working on? Or if people are interested in finding out anything, um, you know, find out what you got to say or tools you have or working with you, where can they go and find out? Where's the be- best place to go and find out a bit more about you, apart from reading the books? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the website's probably the best place to start, amplifiedintelligence.com.au, but um, I'm a big, big LinkedIn person. So anyone who wants to connect with me personally, I'm always encouraging people to do that. And I, you know, I'm really grateful for the support. So if you want to speak to me there, you can ping me there. Um, Otherwise, reach out to our hello desk um, and we can get a team. We're quite a big team now. So there's 40 of us across multiple countries. So um, always happy to chat to people. Great. Okay. Well, I've kept you long enough, longer than maybe I promised I would, but I had a lot of questions to ask you. So um, thanks again for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. I, I felt like it flew by. I could have talked to you for another hour. It about did. Lots of stuff. So that was it fun. Or we can talk about tattoos again if you want. If we can have a chat oh, about could. tattoos. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so listen, no, I really appreciate it. Uh, what time is it there for you? It's 6 p.m., so okay, well, not too bad at all. <laughs> I haven't kept you too late then. So, no. um, Karen Nelsonfield, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you the best of luck with everything and your travels and keep up the good work. So, um, the book's great and all the work you do is great. So, I'm confident. It can be a bit depressing sometimes to listen to all the doom and gloom in the industry, but I'm confident. I'm energized that we're going to do better. So, thank you so much <laughs> for joining for me today. Me. And get better. Oh, yeah, I will. So hopefully I will. It just won't go away. You know, it's like kids, young kids just won't leave. So anyway, um, if you enjoyed that episode, why not listen back to some of our other great episodes? You'll find them by typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Thanks to Andrea on sound and Kira in marketing. And thanks to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions. Until next time, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and 
Irish Times Media Solutions.